You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, last Thursday, it was announced that 19 soldiers from Australia's SAS will probably face murder charges for the deaths of 39 Afghan civilians and unarmed prisoners. The charges stretch back as much as a decade ago during a very difficult period in Australia's involvement in the war in Afghanistan. Perhaps the most heinous of all of the crimes reported, uh, the reports of a practice called blooding, where new recruits were coerced into killing defenceless detainees. When the report was brought down last week, the Australian uh, newspaper in their editorial said that this was a grim day in the history of Australia and of our army. I think their crimes are probably twofold. They are most obviously crimes against innocent civilians, those people, those unarmed civilians, those Afghans who were killed and slaughtered by them. But they're also, in a sense, a crime against us as a nation. The SAS have long been heroes to us. They're some of our best soldiers. They've served uh, all across the world in conflict-torn places, bringing peace. Many have been decorated for their endeavors. Two SAS soldiers received the Victoria Cross in Afghanistan and another two received the Star of Gallantry, the second most uh, significant award that an Australian soldier can receive. And, uh, 
and it's said that any of those awards come for acts of great heroism or conspicuous gallantry in action in circumstances of great peril. These are the acts of heroes. That's why you get one of these awards. And so the SAS to us are kind of poster-worthy, comic book-worthy heroes. And so it's deeply confronting, it's deeply troubling when we hear things like these crimes. Their actions confront us and break down our opinion and idea of what a hero is. As the Australian editorial went on to say, uh, the alleged execution of compliant prisoners incapable of resistance and posing no threat to their captors offends the core ethos of our army. That ethos is part of our national identity. The legend of the digger constitutes a central narrative as to who we are as a nation. Every Australian soldier should be aware that they are custodians of the legacy of the Anzacs, and this demands of them the highest standards of courage, integrity, and decency. We entrust so much to our heroes, and so it's always hard to see them fall when you realise that even the greatest have feet of clay. I was thinking about this as I was studying Isaiah chapter nine, because I feel like this passage is about heroes and heroism. In today's passage, you'll see a great cast of characters, heroes and villains. And today we're gonna see a people who need a hero, but find the wrong one, a hero that turns on them. And then when they do find the right hero, they turn on him. But in the middle of this, we'll see true heroism, the heroism of God himself. How about we pray before we get into it? Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it now. Please bless us, open our hearts, open our minds to receive this and to be changed. May we understand more of who you are and respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this passage begins with a but. So we're clearly coming into this in the middle of something, something that begins in chapter 7. Isaiah writes this book somewhere midway through the 8th century BC, a dark point in the history of God's people. By this stage, God's people had split in two, Israel in the north and Judah down in the south. The people of Israel had almost completely fallen away from following God, and yet the people of Judah weren't much better. Uh, their fortunes kind of rose or fell depending on the king who was in charge and how they were following God's law. At this point in time, Judah's king is a man called Ahaz, and he was a bad king. 2 Kings 16 says, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He served other gods, the idols of the nations around him, to the point where he would even uh, kill his own children as a, as a sacrifice to these gods. And as was often the case, uh, as the king sinned, the people were left exposed. And now Israel, now God's people in Judah are facing a foreign threat. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1 says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So they're, they're coming close. They're not quite there yet, but they're coming close. And this unnerves Ahaz. In verse two, we read, when the house of David was told about this, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. God's people are in crisis. 
they face disaster. They need rescuing. They need a hero. And straight away, God steps in to offer them hope. He sends his prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, urging him to be calm, reassuring him that he will look after him. Chapter 7, verse 4, he says to Isaiah, Go and tell Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Remarkably, despite all of their sin, God is still willing to protect Judah. He says, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. I'm going to look after you. And then he goes on to explain that even though these other armies seem so impressive, they've only got human strength. The head of these nations are just humans, but the head of God's people is God himself. God is effectively offering to be their hero, to give them his strength. They need rescuing and he is willing to do it, but they must trust him. Chapter 7, verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He's really laying it out for them, for Ahaz and for all of God's people. Trust God, trust his strength and not your own or anyone else's. Sadly, however, Ahaz does not do that. Rather than turning to God and trusting God's strength, Ahaz turns to human strength. He seeks a military alliance with another nation, the Assyrians. At first, this seems like a good idea. The Assyrians are the growing superpower. They're the people that you want on your side and not against them, not against you. But Ahaz is hopelessly naive because Assyria, this hero that they were looking to, suddenly turns on them. First, they destroy Israel, carting off God's people to Samaria, and then they move down south to Judah. They take the borderlands of the people of Zebulun and Naphtali in the north of the country, and then they move on down towards Jerusalem. It's a tragic situation. God had offered them his strength, but they had rejected it and chosen human strength instead. And now that human strength has turned against them. Well, chapter 8 finishes with God bemoaning the folly of their choices and telling his people what it's going to be like for them. Chapter 8, verse 22, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God's people look doomed. And yet incredibly, as we begin chapter 9, there is hope. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You see, even though they've ignored him, God is willing to rescue his people. There'll be no gloom for those who are in anguish. The lands belonging to Zebulun and Naphtali up in the north, that'll be the place that first experiences God's grace, God's rescue. A new dawn is coming. Those who have been in darkness will see light because God is going to rescue his people. In this amazing way of the kind of grace that will remind them of his past grace, his his greatest hits. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
This seems to be a reference to something that happened about 450 years before all this. Uh, God's people were at that time under the oppressive rule of the Midianites and forced into caves and their crops devoured. And we're told in Judges 6 that Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And God responded by raising up a hero, a man named Gideon who led God's people into battle against the Midianites and claimed an extraordinary, a miraculous victory. God rescued them and now he's going to do it again. He's going to send them another hero. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In Jewish culture, your name was very, very important. It wasn't just what people called you, it's what represented you. It described your whole character, your whole personality. This figure that we're being told about has an extraordinary name, a whole bunch of names, in fact, and each one is rich with meaning. Wonderful counsellor suggests a kind of supernatural wisdom. A more literal reading is something like, he is a wonder of a counsellor. There's something spectacular, uniquely profound about this figure. And he is the Prince of Peace. Again, the Hebrew is sort of administrator, but it's not as boring as that sounds. This is someone who captures peace and administers it for his people, secures it for his people and a beautiful kind of peace. The Jews had a word for it, shalom. It meant wholeness or completeness, a deep, profound sense of rightness where everything is as it should be. How could one person do all this? Well, the answer is in those other names. He is mighty God and everlasting father. He will act with the, the power and greatness of God, the one who is everlasting, the one from whom everything infinite comes. Taken all together, this is quite the package. This figure is extraordinary. As one writer puts it, he is in himself all that his people need. The wonderful counsellor supernatural in wisdom, God himself calm in victorious power, ever fatherly in care, the prince administrator of total well-being. He is, in fact, the ultimate hero that God had promised his people. You see, 300 years before Isaiah, there was a king named David, a great king through whom God blessed his people. And God made a promise to David that after him, sometime in the future, one of his descendants would rule forever. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled, God says to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was the promise that God's people lived with, that fueled their hope that one day God would send this son of David who would secure their place forever. And now Isaiah points to this king in chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, he says in verse 7. He will rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is what God is promising here. A true hero, the 
true hero. And just imagine hearing this prophecy for the first time. Imagine the first hearers in the darkness and the anguish they were experiencing as the shadow of Assyria crept across their nation. Here was hope. Here was a hero. And with this promise in mind, God's people would look to every son of David with a sense of expectation. Could this be the one? Is this next boy king going to be the one who saves us? Well, not too long after Isaiah received this prophecy from God, a good candidate emerged, a man named Hezekiah. We'll encounter him later on in the book. And his story feels very similar to that depicted in this prophecy. He was a good man, a good king. 2 Kings 18 says, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He was an amazing king. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And then we're told that the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. You see, during his reign, the, the Assyrians came up to Jerusalem, just like they were kind of going up to the neck of Judah. And he was faced with the same challenge that Ahaz had had. Would he trust God or would he trust his own strength? Would he turn to God and put trust in him or just rely on human strength? Well, he chose well. Where Ahaz chose badly, Hezekiah chose wisely. He turned to God and God delivered him. And so there would have been people who thought that Hezekiah was the one, the true hero that they were waiting for. But it didn't turn out that way. We go on to read in 2 Kings chapter 20 that as his reign continued and he experienced more and more of God's blessing, he grew proud. Eventually, the king of Babylon sent envoys to Hezekiah, ostensibly to honour him, but probably just to spy on him. Naively, Hezekiah welcomed them in and showed them everything in his treasure house. We're told in 2 Kings 20, there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And after they'd gone, Isaiah was sent to King Hezekiah with the message, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. All of those things that you boasted in will be taken away. You see, Hezekiah had made the same mistake as everyone before him. He trusted his own strength. God had blessed him and under his reign, God had rescued his people. But now Hezekiah had taken the credit for it. He was boasting in what he had accomplished rather than what God had accomplished. And whenever someone does that, they find that their strength fails them. And so it would prove here, just a few generations later, the Babylonians did come to Judah. And this time the land was overrun and everything taken off back into Babylon and God's people into exile, just as God had warned them. And so God's people were still left waiting for the true hero. Every hero would kind of emerge for a moment, but then they would be shown to be flawed. For centuries they waited. There were good times, 
God brought them back from Babylon. They resettled the land. But there were also horrible times, times of anguish and darkness. Until finally, new hope dawned. 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, an angel came to a young woman, a virgin named Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary is told that she's going to have a child, and that child will be the one, the true hero, the rescuer who had come to save God's people. And we see as Jesus grows up that the themes of this prophecy become the themes of his ministry. He begins his ministry in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, just where God said that the rescuer would come. And he brings light. He would tell everyone, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as the people watch him and follow him, they dare to believe. They begin to imagine that this one could be their hero, the true hero. The crowds throng around him. They see his power, his authority over demons, disease, even death itself. He seems to have the power of the mighty God within him. And they follow him, eager to believe, wanting to believe. In fact, when he comes to Jerusalem, the royal city of David, they line the streets to welcome him, proclaiming him as their king, their hero. Matthew 21, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, just a few days later, Jesus was dead. The one that they had looked for, the one that they had begun to hope in, they suddenly rejected and killed. How could this happen? You see, it doesn't make sense. He had come to rescue them, but now they've destroyed him. Why? Why did they do this? Why? Would they turn on him? I think it's because he was not the kind of hero that they wanted. He was a hero, but he wasn't the kind of hero that they wanted to listen to. You see, they were thinking of things from just a human perspective, just like their forefathers. They were trusting in human strength. They were looking for someone who would lift them up and make them great and drive out the Romans and give them back Jerusalem for their people. But Jesus wasn't interested in that. Every time they acclaimed him, he'd tell them to stay quiet. At one point, the crowd almost tried to force him to be the king and he just sort of slips away through them. Because Jesus wasn't here just to rescue them from the Romans. See, he was the hero, come to rescue them from their enemy, but not the enemy 
that they imagined. No, the shocking truth was that they were the enemy. And Jesus had come to rescue them from themselves. You see, the ultimate problem, the ultimate enemy is sin. Sin is that rebelliousness within us that sees us ignore God and defy him. It dates back to the very first humans, Adam and Eve. They had life with God and peace. They had shalom. Everything was right. Everything was in harmony. And God's power, the power of the mighty God sustained all of this. They lived with the prince of peace. They knew how to live because they had the wonderful counselor showing them how to live. But then they chose to rebel against him. They were tempted by the option of being gods themselves, of ruling the world on their own without God. They trusted in their own human strength. But in doing so, they became enemies of God. They set themselves up against him, ignoring the one with wisdom, resisting the one with power, fighting the God of peace, even when God came in peace. That's why when Jesus came, he was rejected. Jesus came to rescue them from their folly, from their defiance, from God's righteous judgment. But they didn't want to hear that. They didn't like the idea that God would see them as his enemies. They found that offensive. They hated it when Jesus said that they were sinners. And so they had him killed. In sin, they had him destroyed. They didn't want to hear that they needed rescuing, so they killed the only one who could rescue them. And yet, incredibly, it was through his death that the rescue came. See, on the cross, the people taunted Jesus. They called out to him, Matthew 27. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. If you're truly the one, the hero, then save yourself. And Jesus could have saved himself. He told Peter the night before that he could just call his angels at any moment. But he'd chosen not to. He didn't save himself because he was there to save them to save us. Jesus was always in control. John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was laying down his life to make enemies friends. Jesus died so that others could live. He died to pay the penalty for sin. He took on the darkness and anguish and evil of God's people so that he could bring them life and light. He made himself weak so we could be strong. He gave God's strength to those who had resisted him. Here is true heroism. I started this talk thinking about the SAS and I was reminded of how if you go to the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne, you go right into the middle of the shrine and you look down and there's a tablet, a stone tablet. It's recessed into the ground and it has these words, greater love 
has no man. It's the ethos of the soldier that you sacrifice yourself for others so that they might be safe, that they might be rescued. It's the idea of heroism. And of course, it comes from the Bible. Jesus himself said this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his friends. But I note this, they are only friends because of his death. We have no right, no claim. We can't presume on his friendship. We were his enemies, but God made us his friends through his death. Here we see the heroism of God, that he would give his strength to those who have none, that he would die to make enemies friends. God made himself nothing because we are something to him, something precious, something valuable, something he would be willing to die for. Of course, often you have a hero who dies and that's it. There's something romantic about it, something tragic about it. You think of William Wallace in Braveheart dying for freedom, but then they just die and that's it. The glory of Jesus is that it's something different. He died, but then he rose again. And so we can have knowledge and truth and and assurance that he has truly succeeded in dealing with our sin. The hero gives himself for us completely and then rises to give new life for anyone who will follow him. And so as we come towards a close today, I wanna to leave you with some thoughts. I wanna suggest three ways in which we need to respond to this Jesus. First of all, we need to recognize that we need rescuing. See, it wasn't just God's people in the Old Testament or God's people at the time of Jesus who needed rescuing. It, it's us too. Like them, we too have walked away from God. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, we don't like to hear that. The people in Jesus' day didn't like to hear that they needed rescuing and neither do we. We want to imagine that we're okay. We tell ourselves, I'm a good person. I do nice things or we compare ourselves with the bad people out there, the murderers, the thieves, the stockbrokers, the, the bloke who lied at Woodville Pizza. But look at yourself properly. Are you not broken? Are there not things that you're ashamed of? Are there not things that you're held by? Things that you wish you didn't do, but you can't stop doing? I know there is for me. I know I need a hero. I need rescuing. I need Jesus. So we need to recognize that we need rescuing. And then secondly, we need to ask Jesus to rescue us. Maybe that sounds obvious, but it's actually very difficult to do. You see, it's amazing how hard it is to ask God to help us. 
to save us. We want to be our own hero. We want to rescue ourselves. We want to save ourselves with our own human strength. But we can't. Our heroes fail. Whether they're out there, the SAS or a guru or some psychologist or whatever it is that we're hoping can save us. Or in here, when we try to be our own heroes, we too fail. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you see, it's okay. It's okay that we fall short because God wants to save us. It's okay that we don't have the strength to save ourselves because God wants to give us his strength. That's really the whole point of this passage. You might have noticed I mentioned the Midianites earlier on and the story of Gideon. I just kind of glossed over it. I want to come back to that because if you know the story, you know that it wasn't Gideon who was the hero. It was God. In fact, Gideon's a really flawed hero. When you meet him in the story, he comes off as whingy and timid, but then God strengthens him. And then, crazily enough, when he leads the army out, God deliberately weakens him. He starts off with this army of 32,000 and God whittles it down to 300, just 300. And they're up against this massive army of about 130,000. 130,000 and 300. Why does God do this? Because God wants Gideon and God's people and us to see that the rescue comes from God. It's God's strength. It's not human strength. It's God who rescues. Do you know what the name Isaiah means? It actually means Yahweh is salvation. God saves. That's what this whole book is about. That's what this whole passage is about. This is the key theme. This is the key lesson. In every crisis, we have a moment where we get to choose between our own strength or God's strength. And God says, choose my strength. So if you feel the crisis of how do I get to God, don't look to your own strength. Look to God's strength. I love how this passage finishes. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. At the end of God's beautiful prophecy, he says, I'm going to make this happen. And God has been making it happen for centuries, for millennia. To every person who seeks him out, who asks him to rescue them, who recognizes they have no strength themselves, God gives his strength. He'll give it to you today if you ask for it. And then thirdly, I want to suggest that as you take God's strength, continue to live in it. Live with your hero. Ray Ortland writes, as Jesus, Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, has the best ideas and strategies, so follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily, so hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly, so enjoy him. 
As the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we're still his enemies. So let's welcome his rule. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful promise of a hero. Lord, we thank you that you keep promising us this even when we sin, even though we continually need rescuing again and again. We thank you that you are persistent in your grace. Lord, help us not to look to our own strength, to human strength, but to look to your strength. Thank you that you give it to anyone who asks. And so I pray that right now people will ask for it. Thank you that in Jesus we have everything we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.